From Hagerstown, Maryland, the Associated Builders and Contractors of Cumberland Valley bring you their weekly podcast. This week, we are talking to safety professionals from our members within ABC about how they're dealing with some of the new regulations for the COVID-19 outbreak. So let's join in on the conversation. We know, uh, as of today, we know that Pennsylvania um, is going to reopen construction on May 1st, which is only a few days away. Um, We believe that the governor will be putting out um, a document with restrictions and um, uh, recommendations for the construction industry as they start to reopen in Pennsylvania. Um, We know that Maryland continues to allow construction to to operate. and uh, we know that we also believe that Governor Hogan is going to be coming out yet this week, somewhere around Thursday or so, um, with his reopening plan um, of what it's going to look like for the economy as a whole to, uh, to reopen for the state of Maryland. And we also expect that there will probably be some new regulations and new uh, restrictions um, that will come out to allow those businesses to start to open. So I'll start out and ask uh, just for the fun of it, um, you know, what does everybody think about the states, though, like Georgia and uh, I think Florida and some of the southern states that decided to go ahead and open bowling alleys, tattoo parlors and bars and restaurants at this point in time? Um, what do you guys think of that? Do you think they're on the right track or do you think maybe they might have jumped ahead a little bit? Um, I mean, I can understand tax parlors being one of the first ones to reopen. That makes, makes perfect sense to me. What do you guys think? <laughs> They're uh, rushing to get it or, you know, looking forward to get it back open quickly. Um, you know, and there've been some protests and things like that. We'll just have to see, you know, if there are any spikes um, with, with opening that many things. I think there's a lot of pressure. I mean, especially when you look at Florida, I mean, they're so tourist-driven, um, you know, where I'm sure that those governors are just getting a lot more pressure from the tourist industry than they would, say, even here, you know, in Maryland or Pennsylvania. Um, we also, being in Maryland, have a pretty intentional governor um, who's great at communicating and, um, you know, is the head of the Governor Association, has a plan, seemingly has a, a plan for everything. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know that you know, other states necessarily have that, that intentionality um, and are really just taking so much pressure that you know, you'll start to see some of these shotgun approaches that hopefully don't end up being more damaging than profitable. I, I think as well, I mean, one of the good things for some of the states that are, are jumping ahead here and doing this, I, I, I think it as well will be a good study for us. Um, the states that are maybe a little bit behind or have higher case, uh, have a higher number of cases of COVID-19. Um, it'll, it, and obviously, we don't wish any bad will on any of those people or any of those states, but it'll be a good study for us to see kind of what happens as they do reopen and go full bore ahead with many of those businesses. Um, it, it'll kind of let us know, you know, fairly quickly whether that is the, you know, the correct path or not. Um, so I think it, it, it could be a good thing um, all the way around and, and hopefully uh, uh, they're able to, to expedite their economic recovery, um, but time will tell. 
so I guess on from the, uh, the, the, the fun stuff, I thought I would start with a, you know, something a little bit lighter. Um, so one of the things I wanted to kind of touch on today, I, I've had a couple of questions. I wanted to see what you guys as safety professionals um, thought about these and maybe what protocols you guys are putting into place. But um, what about after hours, uh, after hours to job sites? We are hearing um, that some businesses uh, are disinfecting their job sites at the end of the shift. Some businesses may have crews come in early in the morning and disinfect first thing in the morning prior to anybody getting there um, so that, you know, they're, they're disinfected, uh, uh, you know, I guess so that they're disinfected and they know that nobody else has been on that job site and they're sure they've caught it um, because they're disinfecting, you know, two or three hours prior to, uh, to the shift starting. But with that being said, uh, what about access to job sites after hours? Um, you know, are there deliveries being made after hours? What about the general public? Um, should all job sites be fenced, locked, and, and all of those types of things? What kind of precautions should we be taking, and what kind of precautions are you guys seeing out there? I can only speak for our sites, but uh, all of ours are secured. Um, the hours are... Uh, communicated with any uh, delivery companies and um, you know, we, we asked for a call prior to the driver arriving. Um, we're doing all of our disinfecting in the evening so it has all night to, uh, to sit um, on our tools and equipment and things like that. And we only have one site right now that's working multiple shifts uh, but still it's um, you know, there, there is security on measures in place on that uh, project through the, the middle of the night into the prior to the first shift starting. Okay. Anybody else uh, experience anything or see anything out there? And actually an additional question. Um, are you guys, uh, are you guys having your visitors, uh, delivery truck drivers, all of those folks, do they have to fill out any type of questionnaire? Um, or answer any questions before being admitted to the job site? Some job sites we have seen that on. Um, we, as, we do require them to, to do a self one themselves, though. Um, as a company, we, we implemented that, that, just stating that they hadn't been around anybody, hadn't traveled or anything like that. But uh, several, several sites have. Um, I think right now it's probably 75% no and 25% yes. Um, it, it just really depends on some of the larger um, places that we deal with are, are taking temperatures and, and that sort of stuff. Um, if we're inside, um, definitely have seen an, an uptake of uh, temperatures and, and filling out the paperwork. Now, for you guys, when you're requiring your uh, your employees to take uh, or answer the questionnaire, how often do you do that? Uh, is that something that's done once a week or, or do you do it on a regular basis or is it just one time? No, we, we do it daily. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is the importance of doing it daily is once these individuals get off of work, um, you know, they, they still have to go grocery shopping. There, there's still things that have to be done. Um, and, and they may come in contact with somebody. And if they've been alerted that they've been in contact with somebody, 
um, you know, we we need to know that so we can take the proper uh, steps to ensure the safety of the, the rest of the employees. Um, so, yes, we do require it on a, on a daily basis. What about, uh, Josh, uh, like in the insurance industry, um, uh, you know, you guys are working from home, I guess, most of the time. I don't know if you're still going to the office any, um, but I'm curious from an office standpoint, and Jason, you can jump in then as well, uh, but or have you seen any of this or, or are you guys allowing more than one person at a time at the office and how are you handling that? Do they need to fill out a questionnaire or take their temperature and send you a picture or, or what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, we've been getting uh, daily emails from our operations manager just with updates that have been coming, uh, things that they've seen and, you know, our most of our the, the management that's necessary to be in the offices there every day, obviously less than 10. Um, I've been working remotely along with, I say 85%, you know, of our team is typically there at the office has been working remotely for you know, over three weeks. Um, but, you know, there are instances where we do have to go in. Um, so uh, ensuring that we're talking to our managers, uh, making sure that they're aware when we're going to show up um, and just kind of giving them a general overview of what, we're hoping to accomplish when we go there. Um, you know, obviously the, the mingling, uh, you know, talking to, to folks, we have to maintain our social distances, but um, kind of just limiting those contact points. Uh, we use a, a common entrance in, in and out where typically, you know, we have three different locations to go in and out so that when we are, when they are sanitizing, um, they're not having to do everything, um, just focusing on those key entry and exit points. Um, but, you know, things like, printer uh, you know that's being every time uh, we use it we have to to wipe it down and so yeah some of the general protocols that you know I don't I don't know what the guys are seeing um, but uh, just trying to stay aware of it as much as possible we're kind of the same here at the office Josh uh, I'd say probably the same as you about 85% of, of office staff are working remotely um, our fabrication shop is is here and still running we have split that um we're working four tens so on monday is half the shift tuesday wednesday thursday everybody's here and then friday is the second half so um and we're trying we've broken up break areas um so you know people aren't eating lunch taking break in in the same spots um, we've provided them with PPE um, and then also, you know, daily disinfecting of, of those common areas like you, you talked about um, from, you know, tabletops, work surfaces, um, tools, equipment, doorknobs, you know, we're spraying everything down. So moving on to another, uh, another point. Um, one of the, the another question that has come up, and I know uh, in Pennsylvania with uh, their regulations for reopening construction, they are going to require, um, I believe that, uh, and I might be misstating this, I'm not looking at it, but I believe it was about one uh, restroom per 10 employees. Um, and then obviously, if you have a mixed workforce, um, you know, if it was perfectly split, you had 10, 10 men and 10 women, you would just need a men's and a women's. Um, but, you know, obviously that can be, uh, uh, I don't want to say compounded, but 
uh, it, it would be an increased number depending on the number of men and women you would have because you would need separate facilities for each. Um, have you guys seen on job sites anywhere where you know you've seen increased uh, uh, toilets um, or increased porta pots? And uh, what about increased cleaning? Um, are, are you guys seeing that that is is something that is happening on job sites? Um, and to that point, um, you know. Or are you able to get as many porta pots as you as you need on job sites? Are you able to get them cleaned as often as they are, or is that something that you're taking on? You are actually uh, disinfecting them throughout the day. Amos, we've uh, we've seen an increase on job sites of the amount of porta pots and the amount of cleaning. Um, I, I think some of the rental companies um, are. Um, doing their best to keep up with the amount of request for the frequency of cleaning. Um, that might be something where they'll need to hire some additional staff, um, you know, as, as the weeks go on. Um, we've also, on our larger sites, we are supplying our crews with their own um, porta pots um, And we also sanitize those daily as well. Um, at least daily, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, there again, just any common areas, and that is a common area. Um, but, um, you know, and we've also seen an uptick in the amount of hand washing stations outside of the porta pots, not just the hand sanitizer, but soap, water, towels. Um, that is required in Virginia already. Um, that may be something that. Uh, moving forward, Maryland will incorporate as well, but um, that's something that, that we're seeing um, and we're doing on our job sites. Out of curiosity, and this is something I've heard from time to time, uh, I think it's hit or miss, but what are you guys having, having any issues with um, uh, toiletries and hand sanitizers and those types of things disappearing? Um, what I mean is, uh, you know, are, are those things disappearing from job sites or people taking them home? And, you know, I've heard some reports where in areas that are heavily hit where people can't buy toilet paper and they can't buy hand sanitizing wipes that those things are disappearing. I use the term theft very lightly there because, you know, if you can't find it anywhere, you do what you got to do. I understand it. Um, but are you guys experiencing any of those problems and what do you do? Uh, do you, are you, you know, what are some unique ways maybe that you're locking those things up on job sites or, or securing them so that you're sure you have them for the safety of your employees and, and, uh, the public? I haven't noticed or heard anything about, um, the tissues being stolen on the job sites here at the office when this first started and you couldn't find any anywhere. Um, we did move our supply to a, a locked area here in the office. Um, as far as hand sanitizer goes, we were struggling in the beginning. There is a, a local distillery um, here in Frederick that's right around the corner that is um, producing it that we have been able to buy it in large quantities. Um, so I bought smaller bottles for each job site and instead of leaving a gallon on each job site, um, I'm just telling the guys, hey, when you get low, let me know, um, because I'm doing my, my um, 
inspections anyway. So, and I'll fill it up as we go. So that helps me keep keep an eye on it as well. We have, as well, have been able to um, get the smaller bottles and kind of do the same thing. Um, we issue them to the to the employees themselves, um, and then they have them with them, and then we just refill them as as need be. Yeah, I had a conversation on Friday with a, um, a local distributor down here in Hagerstown. He typically is providing these the office supplies and things to to companies, um, saying he can't. He's having a tough time meeting orders um, and because he can't get it. Um, and then a lot of the, you know, the folks that are producing it <clears throat> are selling direct, you know, or are selling directly to the hospital, directly to the businesses, um, kind of cutting out that middleman per se. Um, but, you know, I wonder what, you know, when it gets to, you know, hopefully those distilleries can keep, can keep up with it, but is there anything, you know, uh, uh, keeping someone from, grabbing those online recipes and those things that you see where you can kind of make the hand sanitizer yourself. Um, are there any type of restrictions on a company gathering, you know, those two or three supplies that are needed and kind of producing them as they need to, if they can't meet, you know, can't find anywhere to buy it. The only thing that I could think of there would be, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're creating it yourself and I think it's supposed to be, again, I'm not looking at the document, I think it's supposed to be 60% alcohol or something. And if you were to make it not have a proper way to test it and, you know, one batch only ended up being 40% alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, again, I think you're, you're doing the best you can and you're doing your due diligence to, to try to, to, to help your, your workforce and help everybody. But I think as a business, if you created it and gave it to your workforce, you might create a little bit of liability. Um, but at the same time, I can't imagine a judge wouldn't look at something like that if it came down to it and say, look, you were doing everything you could. You took every precaution you could. So be it. Um, right. But you, you might be taking on a little bit of liability. But I, right. I don't think that should stop people from investigating that just as a thought. Right. Well, I say that for the edification of the group, because it is, you know, certainly a thought that a lot of people are going to have, um, you know, as they can't find it. Um, when you hear, you know, the supplier that typically is bringing you your paper towels and has brought you soaps and hand sanitizers forever, can't do it. Um, and you have to have something to get on that job site or show, you know, it's just something for companies to keep in mind, you know, as they do decide to, to go that route, that there's some liability involved in it if you can't meet those specs. But. And I did have to explain to a few people, even 100 proof grain alcohol is only 50% alcohol, <laughs> so that doesn't work. <laughs> oh my. You know, so, but like I said, we found a distillery here. I, I've heard of a number of distilleries that are doing it. Um, I checked a couple down in Virginia and they couldn't keep up with the demand now that was several weeks ago. Now that you know things are calming down a little bit, um, you know th that that might be a a good avenue to to check with just some local distilleries. You know, this is really completely unrelated to safety, but I'm just curious because we have uh, three different states here, and as you guys are talking about demand and supply, um, what does it look like out there? Um, you know, here in Pennsylvania. Um, it's kind of hit or miss. I, you know, go to a couple different places to go shopping, but 
supplies in general. Um, I mean, at the grocery store, um, some areas, the meat is non-existent. Neither the next store, the toilet paper is non-existent. What are you guys seeing in your states, just as kind of a point of reference? Uh, we'll start with uh, wild and wonderful West Virginia. I'm seeing the same thing. We do the same as you. We go to, to multiple stores and um, it, it is hit and miss. Um, one week, the, you know, a certain aisle will be empty and the next week it'll be okay and, you know, milk will be gone. Or, um, so it, it's, it's really hit and miss. But I think things aren't as bad as they were, you know, even two weeks ago, definitely four weeks ago or six weeks ago. Okay. Um, for us, I mean, on the work side, of course, you know, I'm in the same boat as everybody. N95s are months out. Um, that's the biggest thing. We're in decent shape on everything else. Rubber gloves, we're okay on, but that's an item that a lot of people are, are fighting to get. But um, N95s are the biggest because, you know, construction work still goes on and we have to have that protection. Yep. What about Maryland? Uh, I mean, what's it look like out there in the in the grocery stores and the, the stores in Maryland? Seeing the same thing that, that Jason was just talking about, you know, uh, sometimes there's there's supplies and, and other times there's there's not. Um, I myself don't have Facebook, but I know what has uh, developed because my wife has Facebook is these groups that uh, when let's say dollar general gets a supply of hand sanitizer somebody will post on there you know dollar general um wherever it's at has hand sanitizer so it seems like you know there's a lot more um networking going on so to speak um <laughs> where people are, are trying to keep other people uh, up to date where these things are and where they're 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 not um, but it does seem to go rather quickly when those types of things do show up. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's hit or miss. Sometimes there's stuff there and, and sometimes there's not. Interesting. And, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on that subject, but the one thing I just, I read this morning, uh, Tyson shut down all their uh, pork manufacturing, or I don't want to say all of, but like three of their main pork manufacturing plant. And it was in the New York uh, New York Times yesterday, the CEO of, of uh, Tyson wrote a letter and kind of they put it in the uh, New York Times that, you know, he's he's predicting how bad the, the meat shortage is going to be as we go on in the months um, because of the fact that they're shutting down the plants. Um, because a lot of these plants employ hundreds and hundreds of people and they're coming down with, in those close proximities, they're coming down with, uh, you know, out of 300, you know, maybe a hundred or something will have COVID-19 and so they're shutting the plants down. So just something to, to think about. I was just curious for everybody that might be listening to get a reference point of what it looks like in each one of the states. Um, but moving on, we were, we were talking about, you know, bathrooms, cleanliness, uh, products, cleaning products. It's a good segue into uh, really, I think a subject that, that is twofold or it, two subjects that are connected. Um, one, what are we doing to get rid of, how are we disposing of the PPE that is disposable on the job sites? Um, and secondly, 
have you guys started to think about as warm weather is approaching in our region? Um, you know, our workers are going to be out there working, sweating. Um, you know, are there any extra precautions? How are we going to handle uh, Gatorade or water on the job sites uh, this year? Um, because we may not be able to have open water coolers and things of that nature. Um, so I guess the first part of this, the question is, what are we doing to dispose of uh, the disposable PPE and are you doing anything special with that after they get rid of it or do we just throw it in a pile in the corner of the job site and, uh, you know, hope that somebody will clean it up? What are you guys doing? Well, with us, Amos, um, that, that is a good question moving forward as it gets hot because, uh, you know, the, the working in hot weather and construction is always a big push every year um, with, OSHA, MOSH, VOSH, and obviously, you know, us safety professionals. Um, it, I think if we're working on a site where there is not a confirmed case and not an exposure, I think we could dispose of it in the dumpsters possibly. Um, you know, that would cause, you know, we just more dumpsters or, you know, frequently, more frequently getting them dumped. Um, what we've done with our service department, if, if they go into a house where that person is sick or they do have a confirmed case, we've done training on all the PPE to be worn. We got with the, um, the head of our, our local department of health and, and had meetings with them about what PPE is needed, trained on how to put it on, trained on how to take it off and in the kits we put together is a, a red biohazard bag. So when they take it off, it does go in that bag. It comes back here and goes into a, a special biohazard uh, receptacle. Um, but that is definitely something to look into. As far as uh, the hydration goes, we've been pushing for years about bringing your own um, bottle or thermos every day or multiple bottles every day just because of the cleanliness. Um, I, I personally wouldn't want to share water out of a, a thermos or, or a, a big container. So, you know, I always have my own. Uh, Donnie, I know you're the same. You always bring your gallon jug into our meetings. Um, so that's something we've been pushing for years. Um, we do buy bottled water or cases of bottled water, have them on each in each job trailer as well in case somebody forgets theirs or they run out. We do have a backup. Like I said, we've been really pushing that for years just from the sanitation aspect. As far as we go with the hydration, um, yes, we, we buy the bottled water. All the safety professionals have a cooler. Um, we buy Gatorade bottles as well, and your the larger cranes that are going out, usually um, those operators have a cooler that has the bottled water and Gatorade in it. Um, but we also encourage, you know, self-hydration, bring your own. There are several other guys that, uh, besides myself, do carry around the gallon jug and, and that. So um, for, for sanitary reasons, like Jason said, you know, five-gallon cooler, um, you have multiple people drinking out of it, you know, it, it's just not the most sanitary out there. Um, as far as disposable PPE for us, 
most of the stuff that we do, um, we're not having to use disposable PPE. Um, we did supply our employees with masks that are um, washable, and we have instructed them that, you know, each night when they go home, they're to wash those cloth masks. Um, so we don't have the disposing of, of paper masks. Um, and gloves, most of our work does not require us to, to wear the gloves or gowns. It's more outside work, um, not in enclosed areas like Jason has to deal with and that sort of stuff. So we really don't have an issue with um, the disposable PPE in that sense. Now, a, a question. Um, you, you mentioned, you both mentioned having extra drinks there, and I don't know the answer to this, but um, you know, the, the part of the issue with the COVID-19 um, uh, virus is that it, it's encapsulated. I think if, I, if I'm quoting this correctly, it's encapsulated inside of fat. Um, so it takes some period of time for that to die. I don't know what, what temperature, um, but, you know, if a guy sneezes on his hand and then he reaches into a cooler to get a bottle of water, um, what could be the side effects of that? Could you possibly um, pass that along uh, through the cooler? And I don't know that answer. I don't know if at a, at a cold temperature it dies. Um, I know in the wintertime, they're saying that it's a little bit worse as far as the contagion of this. Um, but it's something that you might want to think about or, or, or research. Um, I'll research it as well to see if I can find an answer. But I just, off the top of my head, that might be something that you want to look into that you maybe don't want even people reaching into a cooler like that. Now, we don't, um, our water is usually room temperature. Um, now, that's in an air-conditioned office trailer. Um, but we don't keep big coolers. Um, it, we just found that that was, it can be a little harder to maintain, you know, who's stopping and getting the ice. And uh, we have a big ice machine here, uh, a commercial grade ice machine. They're certainly welcome to come and use it if they want to. Um, but, you know, we don't require them keep it uh, on ice, but it, it can't be kept in a, a sea container, you know, baking in the sun, that's probably 150 degrees. Um, but it, it's just room temperature, but still there's the exposure of reaching into, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whether it's the case that it comes in from the grocery store, um, that, that good questions. Well, I think that, that there's still a lot to be learned as far as the temperature survival rate of this, you know, at what temperatures, uh, very, yeah. very good point that you do bring up. Um, and, and I don't know that anybody at this point knows knows the survival temperatures of it um and, and everything like that so um definitely something to think about and consider going forward and you're know, so starting to think about these things right now um and then i think more you know as we move into and hear more of the the contact tracing process you know of of trying to figure out that that individual that has it what has he touched where has he been um you know, having processes in place as far as collecting individual material, you know, like Jason said, they're doing um, and disposing of that properly um, will maybe make that process a little bit easier if you do get that individual that, that was contaminated and trying to, to figure out where, you know, he came into contact with what points. Um, so I, you know, 
proactive, you know, I, I think is a key. And I don't, I mean, unfortunately, like Donnie said, we don't know a whole lot about it. So just covering your bases and doing as much as you can during this time, I think is key. Perfect. And again, I mean, for everybody, those of us on, on here and, and those uh, of you that are listening, you know, we don't have all the answers. Part of this is just to have a conversation and to ask good questions and to get everybody thinking in a, in a certain fashion. And hopefully, not only are we bringing good information, but we're also posing questions that might make everybody look at things and, and maybe think a little bit differently. Um, they can help us uh, get back to normal and have a recovery even faster. You know, Amos, and, and one thing that I try to do all the time anyway is, is get the teams and get your whole team involved. Um, you know, and uh, every meeting that I have and every email that I send about this is, you know, if, if you have an idea, um, you, you know, a way that we can make it safer, cleaner, better, please don't hesitate to, to let us know. And, you know, we've, we've had a few... Um, you know, just brainstorming sessions here in, in the office uh, with several people and some really good ideas have come about that. And, and that does so much for that whole culture of your program, let alone, you know, with this specific incident that we're dealing with. But, you know, really reach out to your teams um, and get everybody involved. Good point. Um, so moving on kind of to, I guess, the last point for today, uh, which again is a, is a double point. Um, but there have been some uh, states that have enacted a uh, number of employees per square foot rule um, for construction, so that depending on the on the square footage of the job, that tells you how many uh, how many construction workers you can have in there, as well as they have enacted um, uh, they have enacted recommendations that would require folks to not. Uh, trade stack on jobs. So basically, um, you would have the electricians doing their portion, but you would never have the electricians and the plumbers working at the same time in the same area to try to limit that exposure between, uh, between trades, as well as the number of construction workers uh, per square foot. What do you guys think about that? I mean, if that was something that was to be done, is that something that, that we would be able to uh, to survive. I mean, as a, as if you're on a big job and you have 50 people working on that job and you have to cut down to 25, um, obviously we can survive it and, and it just might prolong the, the length of the job. But what are your thoughts on that? I think we'll have to wait to see what that number is. Um, it could be a huge impact. Um, and, and, you know, it's something that GCs, architects, you know, those people up front, CMs would have to really communicate to the, their customer and the building owner is, you know, this is going to impact the, the schedule. Um, like you said, we, we can survive. It just, you know, we may not get a brand new building in 12 months. It might be 16 months. Um, and then, you know, who is going to monitor that or, you know, be the authoritative figure over that. Um, you know, and if we get down to the end of the project and, and it's really the, the time crunch is, is really affecting everybody, is that still going to be adhered to or is that going to go out the window? Those are some concerns I have. 
Yeah, I think the communication of those plans is going to be key. I mean, the GCs, you know, it's no longer going to be you kind of scheduling your guys for that, you know, the next two weeks. I mean, you're going to have to abide by their schedules and um, be really flexible, which is going to be tough if that's what you had planned, you know, for the next two weeks. So, yeah, I agree. Again, like the rest of this is, I mean, you never, we never thought we'd have to take our gloves and masks and put them in a biohazard bag and bring them back to the office to dispose of them. You know, it's, we're going to have to be fluid and, and see, but, you know, for the smaller contractors, I mean, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, to, to, you know, you may be able to, to move those guys around the house or, you know, the structure to have two different trades in the same area, but, you know, then the decontamination part, I mean, where the, electrician just was now you're putting the plumber but you know electrician's not there but do we need to wipe that down like is there things that we need to do to to make sure that now that tradesman isn't picking up what could have been laid there by the last guy so it's again very fluid doing as much as we can and trying to be proactive with it but the communication is going to be key with that absolutely yeah i it's interesting but uh just the other day i experienced you know we we even just in our personal lives, you got to wear your mask to go into a store and you need to do those things. I was uh, on my way by, everybody knows how much I love Diet Coke. And uh, I was out of Diet Coke and it, it was uh, later in the evening. I was on my way by the store and I realized if I wanted to stop and go in and buy a six pack of, or a 12 pack of Diet Coke that I would have to put my mask on and go through that effort. And I actually thought, you know what, that's a lot of work. I'm just going to go ahead and head home. Uh, you know, I was, I was tired. It was the end of the day. And my point is I, I kind of had to chuckle because I, who would have ever thought we would be in a position where going into the store to pick up a few items would become something that could become, you know, a few extra steps. And it was like, I don't really need to do that. I'll, uh, I can wait till morning. Um, so it, it's, it's uh, fascinating how that has kind of come around as well as, uh, you know, as quickly as people have adapted to wearing their mask. Um, you know, I really have not seen a whole lot of trouble over that. Um, other than, uh, as you guys know, I spent some time in the Breezewood area. Um, I have some property over there. And uh, there are people coming through there that are traveling from other states that may not have masking regulations. And uh, so they're very confused when they can't walk into sheets to get a cup of coffee or, or you know, what have you. Um, and another point to just the general way things look, I will tell you that that Breezewood town, for anybody that knows that area, that's where Route 30, 70, and 76 all converge, and it's always historically been a very busy area. And uh, every time I've been over that way to, to check on family and, uh, and to, to do the things that I need to do over there, there's no traffic. The tractor and trailers are very few. Um, but some of the gas stations have shut down. Um, I mean, the bigger ones have shut down. Really, the only place to get gas left is sheets. Um, and uh, there's nobody traveling whatsoever. And it's almost an eerie feeling to, to uh, see that. But at any rate, anybody have anything else to add uh, before we uh, conclude for this week? Just the preparation is, is the key. Amos, while you were saying that, I was for this past weekend, we went pick up some food, me and my wife, and we got there and remembered that neither of us had brought a mask because I just forgot and uh, my wife happened to have a longer sweater on and was able to tuck it up to get in there to get what we needed come back out but you know from a construction standpoint you can't just have those makeshift covers like it 
you know, the preparation has to be in place. So, you know, just right now, what might seem like something that couldn't happen, or I can't believe us, you know, putting the protocols in place and, you know, starting to work on those processes because, you know, things are going to come together and just making sure that we're prepared when they do, um, I think is, is just the key. And I know it's tough, but as much as we can, preparing and being proactive.